Hello, I'm Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, The Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 44, Esoteric Hermeneutics in Stoicism. Last week's episode may have left some listeners thinking, well, thanks for the introduction to ancient Stoicism, but I came here for the history of Western Esotericism, and so far these Stoics seem pretty irrelevant. In this episode, gentle listener, you will see just how important the Stoics are to Western esotericism and hopefully understand why we wanted to give a general introduction to their thought before diving into the really good stuff. Stoicism was self-consciously a unified way of life and knowledge, and so you can't really understand the bits that are relevant to you if you don't have some idea about the whole outlook. This investigation of esoteric Stoicism will be especially interesting, we hope, because it's so little known outside of specialized circles of classicists. Most everyone with even a small interest in Western esotericism has read somewhere that, quote, Neoplatonism was a very important early ingredient in Western esoteric thought, and so it was. But where in the literature do we hear anything about the Stoics? In this mini-series on Stoicism, we hope to set the record straight, and hopefully the Stoics will find their rightful place in future discussions of the roots of Western esoteric ideas. So what were the main contributions of Stoicism to Western esotericism? Well, we can divide them into two main fields, hermeneutics and physics. In this episode, we're concentrating on the hermeneutics part, and we'll leave the physics for a separate discussion in the next episode. And what are hermeneutics again? Hermeneutics is a fancy term scholars like to use to refer to interpretation. So when you read a book, let's say the Bible, for example, and you are, let's say, a biblical scholar in a university, you're going to approach the text maybe with what we might call a historicist methodology. This will be your hermeneutic lens. But an esoteric Christian, like Jakob Böhme, for example, or a Kabbalist Jew reading the Torah, will approach the text with a seriously esoteric hermeneutic. They'll find multiple layers of meaning, some of them hidden within the text. That's where the esoteric part comes in. And sometimes they'll find contradictory statements in the texts, but resolve them into a higher unity through the hermeneutic action of reading and interpreting the holy words. So part of what makes a movement what it is are the hermeneutics it brings to bear on canonical and other texts. So hermeneutics is a useful term, and we also like it because it's etymologically related to Hermes, the ancient god of, among other things, translators, that is, interpreters, and of liars and thieves, that is, interpreters. So, before we get into the particular Stoic take on esoteric reading, listeners who haven't yet heard episode 26, The Birth of the Symbol, Peter Struck on Ancient Greek Esoteric Hermeneutics, We'll want to have a listen to that, because in that episode we survey a lot of the methodological and historical material which gives contexts to this episode. You might also want to check out episode 8 on the Greek ideas about ancient barbarian sages, because the ancient sages will be making a big comeback in this episode. Transmitters of a perennial wisdom on which the Stoics drew. Now we will start to lay out the interpretive territory in which the Stoics worked. We can start with the important question of what texts the Stoics approached 
to find esoteric philosophic teachings. They had a large library of the works of ancient sages to draw on, it turns out. Not only Homer, who was the go-to author for this sort of reading among Greeks from at least the 6th century BCE. But before we approach the written word at all, we should talk about the written world. Because the Stoic has two books to draw on. The book of written text and the book of nature. And in this, I think, the Stoics pioneer a very important hermeneutic dynamic of many Western esoteric traditions. But this fact has gone largely unrecognized. For the Stoics, the world is an interlocking network of mutually referential signs linked by an occult universal sympathy. We discussed in our episode on Heraclitus way back when that that philosopher's idea of logos was a kind of foreshadowing of later ideas, which would begin to make of logos something more than its traditional Greek meaning. Well, we were talking about the Stoics. In normal Greek parlance, uh, logos was a statement or an account or an explanation of something. And in philosophy, it tends to take on the extended meaning of argument. Logos also has overtones of what we might call the rational. The verb logisdein in Greek means something like to reason, reckon, calculate, and so on. So when we see Plato discuss the exact reasons we should believe that the soul is immortal, he's engaging in logos. But when he wants to tell us that the world is a shining multicolored dodecahedron full of rivers, which he does in the Phaedo, he's speaking in mythos, narrative, storytelling. Two different modes of discourse. Now, as we saw in the previous episode, one of the names the Stoics gave to their cosmic god, the active principle of the universe, which is everywhere, in all things, was Logos. In other words, the universe itself has a Logos, which, while it is usually translated as something like rational principle or innate reason or innate rational principle, could also, and in some cases must also, be translated as something like textual principle or interpretable principle or innate statement because the Stoic sage could read the workings of the Logos in nature. In fact, if we're allowed to take a modern scientific example as an analogy, think of DNA for a minute. DNA is hidden within all living things. We can't see it, but we know it's there and causes them to be just as they are. So oak tree DNA makes oak trees. Rupert's DNA means he will grow up to be Rupert and not Steve. And best of all, DNA can be read. In fact, scientists map it as sequences of letters, right? And the, the rather Kabbalistic recombination of these four letters gives rise to all life on Earth. So, to map this concept onto how the Stoics thought that the universal logos worked as a sort of thought experiment, just imagine that everything has DNA, not just biological life, but rocks, water, stars, planets, light, everything. They all have this indwelling logos, which makes them become what they specifically are, and which can, in principle, be read by the Stoic sage. So that's our first piece of overarching interpretive context. The Stoics looked for a kind of text or meaning, not only in words, but in nature herself. And one of the marks of the sage was the ability to read both types of text. Now, were there any specific techniques for reading this universal hidden text? Yes, there are at least two such arts of interpretation. 
one devoted to the world and one devoted to human culture, and especially textual culture. So let's start with the world, since we've been emphasizing its hermeneutic content for the Stoics. The Stoic sage could read the world through the arts of divination. Most, though not all, Stoics thought that divination worked, and in fact thought that it was a direct communication of gods with mankind. But wait a minute, I hear someone say, I thought the god of the Stoics was definitely not an interventionist god, but more of an impersonal, universal force of providential care for the whole universe. Surely you're not saying that the Stoic god, or gods, since the Stoics seem to have been happy with both formulations. The ancients often don't care much whether you use the singular or plural when referring to the divine, they'll just kind of switch back and forth. Surely you're not saying that the Stoic god intervenes to send messages directly to diviners, be they looking at entrails of animals, interpreting the flight of birds, looking at dreams, or what have you. No, gentle listener, that's not what I'm saying. In fact, the Stoics actually have a very elegant, and to me quite plausible way, of explaining how divination works in a universe where God is basically nature. We'll quote Cicero here, who's our best source for the thought of the early Stoics on the subject. He's talking about haruspici, examining the cracks and lobes of a slaughtered animal's liver, which was very popular in Rome, and ornithomancy, interpreting the actions of birds for prognostications of future events. Actually, in, in this quote, Cicero is talking about bird song specifically, and maybe there's a special name for divination based on bird songs, but I don't know what it is, so we'll just call it chirpomancy. Uh, Cicero says, quote, For it is not a Stoic doctrine that the gods concern themselves with individual cracks in the liver or individual bird songs. Their view is that the world was from its beginning set up in such a way that certain things should be preceded by certain signs some in entrails, some in birds, and so on and so on, end of quote. So, because the universe was already determined to be exactly as it is now from the very beginning, due to fate, aka universal causation, it could also be programmed to have exactly the right signs implanted within it, which can be read by skilled interpreters at given times, and which point to future events, and so on. Now, there's nothing absurd about this in principle because the future events are also predetermined, so they are thus in principle predictable. The whole thing was set up so that divination would work. We just need to find the right signs and read them. Now, this discussion of Cicero's might seem like a reference to the universal network of cause and effect, which Professor Gill referred to last episode, but we have to be careful here. In fact, we're talking about something different because the Stoics didn't think the signs read in divination caused the things that they foretold. They're strictly signs pointing to them. So just like a sign pointing to Missoula, Montana on the highway doesn't actually create Missoula, Montana. So there's no causal correlation between these signs, like say a funny looking liver and the thing that follows the sign, which is whatever a funny looking liver foretells. So the Stoic universe is both an interlinked network of cause and effects and one which is full of interlocking semiotic messages. The two aren't the same, but both are there because of providence. So we see how the Stoic universe was pregnant with a vocabulary of signs. Lovers of Western esotericism will be pricking up their ears at this point. 
because one of the essential characteristics of Western esotericism, formulated by Antoine Febvre in his groundbreaking typology of the subject, is the doctrine of universal correspondences. And it seems that this idea was invented by the Stoics. I certainly can't find it in any earlier source. And the Stoic idea of these signs in nature seems to basically be what we mean by universal correspondences. So score one for Stoicism. Acute listeners will also be thinking back to our recent episode on Hellenistic astrology and remembering the distinction our guest Chris Brennan made between a belief in astral causation and a belief in a correspondence between stellar events and events on Earth, with no assumption of any kind of stellar influence or causal connection. And this Stoic theory of universal semiotics fits precisely with this second type of astrological theory. So it will perhaps come as no surprise that one of the most important Stoics of the middle period, Posidonius, was an ardent proponent of astrology. If the universe is full of interrelated signs, the stars would seem to be a perfect place to look for them, especially in the Hellenistic cosmology we've been talking about in recent episodes. And of course, some astrologers of the Hellenistic period and later adopted this Stoic theory of universal semiotics to explain how astrology worked, without necessarily being full-blown Stoic philosophers themselves. So this is an example of an early documentable influence of Stoicism on non-philosophic Western esotericism, in that they had a seminal influence on astrology in the Hellenistic world. Now, the Stoics used divination quite a bit in their philosophy. For example, Chrysippus is reported to have argued for universal fate based on the fact that divination works. We don't have the argument in its entirety, but it was probably something very logical because Chrysippus was among the greatest logicians in history. Something along the lines of divination of future events would be impossible if the events were not themselves already inevitable. If it's still an open question at this moment, whether or not tomorrow Rupert will go to visit Steve or not, no flight of birds today could possibly predict whether Rupert will go visit Steve or not, since it still might or might not happen. Or to put it in the classical Chrysippin logical form, known as modus ponens, if divination works, then fate is true. But divination works, therefore fate is true. And some of the Stoics, at least, seem to have been keen diviners themselves, in a practical way. I mean, why wouldn't you be? If the divine order has placed signs in the cosmos, for the sage to read, it would be silly not to read them if you want to be a sage. Posidonius of Rhodes is a difficult philosopher to categorize, as he started out as a Stoic but later sort of left the fold and got eclectically involved with Platonic and Aristotelian materials. But we can think of him as a very influential middle Stoic, who later maybe left Stoicism behind. Anyway, Posidonius was very keen on both astrology and divination more generally, and wrote treatises on these arts, which were very influential. And the rise in popularity of astrology at Rome in the first century BCE, which is fairly well documented, is often laid at the door of Posidonius. This might be an oversimplification, it probably is an oversimplification, but certainly Posidonius had a, a strong role in um, popularizing and making philosophically respectable the divinatory arts. So Stoics theorized both a book of nature, 
okay, they didn't call it a book of nature, but their approach sort of prefigures later approaches, which do call it the book of nature. So please permit me this anachronism. So a book of nature and a way of reading the book of nature. All right, but what about more conventional books written on scrolls? Well, here we seem to have developed in Stoicism what is, as far as I can tell, the earliest example of a fully developed philosophic perennialism, complete with ancient sages who spoke and wrote esoterically, a perennial tradition of truth, and a comparative esoteric hermeneutic which embraced both written texts and also myths, rituals, barbarian oral doctrines, and much else, making it all grist for the mill of Stoic interpretation. The Stoics differentiate between religious myths and poetic myths, arguing that the religious stuff, so this is sort of ancient Greek folk religion, basically, this stuff, these ancient institutions like the mysteries, are the pure product of the sages who are seen as having sort of founded these institutions. So we've seen, for example, in a previous episode that Orpheus is credited with having founded certain teletai, certain mystery initiatory rites. This is the sort of model. Every rite has a founder. But the Stoics think the poets may have sort of played with given texts over time so that the message can become a bit garbled and require more skill to excavate from the text. So myths and rituals, very trustworthy. Poets, possibly less so. But nevertheless, not only the classical written sources such as Homer, Hesiod, others could be read as containing hidden truths, which are philosophic Stoic truths, naturally, but also religious institutions, such as cultic practices and other customs, can also be read this way, since these were instituted by the sages, and they thus preserve a purer form of divine wisdom. In other words, although our evidence is frustratingly full of holes, it seems that the recognizable tropes of philosophia perennis, such as we shall see revived in the Renaissance by Ficino, Pico, and others, were present in Stoicism, and that they were present in Stoicism before Platonism even existed, so that we need to give the Stoics the credit, or maybe the blame, for developing a view of how the history of truth worked to which the late Platonists owed a huge amount. And in fact, I don't think it's going too far to say that the basic outlines of perennial philosophy, perennial wisdom, as many modern esotericists will still recognize it, first appears in Stoicism. So, another big first for Stoicism. Let's get historical now and try to outline this history of truth a bit more concretely and specifically. Firstly, how can truth really be perennial? That's easy. For the Stoics, there's, as we've said, a universal logos, which also, being logos, has a kind of epistemological dimension. It can be accessed by humans. We can know things from it. And this guarantees, basically, that truth will be unchanging. And more importantly, it guarantees it will be accessible, at least to wise people, right down the ages. So the nature of the universe guarantees at least the possibility, in principle, of a perennial tradition of truth, right? This idea goes right the way back in Stoicism, as far as we can tell. So this is a very early mainstream Stoic doctrine. We also have an idea, preserved in later authors, but perhaps going back to the Hellenistic period, or perhaps not, that there really were literally ancient sages. This can perhaps be seen as the particular Stoic take on the general Greek tendency 
to idealize the people of the past and contrast the current generation unfavorably with them. So the Greeks were begun the whole, back in the good old days, things were better motif, um, which we've noted before in this podcast. Chrysippus bases arguments for fate in esoteric reading of Homer, which is one of our earliest examples of this kind of exegesis. More on this later in the episode. But we don't get a programmatic view of ancient sages and who they were and what made them so sage from Chrysippus. But if we look later, we find just such a program, luckily for us. Dio Chrysostom, the golden-mouthed one, as his nickname indicates, was a first century CE Roman orator who drew on a lot of kind of learned philosophic texts in his work. In his 12th oration, he states that earlier mankind was closer to nature than men of his day, so that their prolepsis, this is a technical term for something like apprehension, their prolepsis of God was better than ours. This idea has been traced to Stoicism in Chrysostom, and it can be found elsewhere in contemporary Stoic accounts. Let's introduce Cornutus. Lucius Annaeus Cornutus was a Roman Stoic of the first century CE who flourished at Rome in the reign of the Emperor Nero, which seems to have been a very fertile time for Stoicism. We have a work by him in Greek called, in English, the Compendium of Greek Theology, in which we find an approach to ancient wisdom which doubtless preserves material from the early Stoics as well, though it's always difficult to say exactly what goes back to exactly whom. In chapter 17 of the Compendium, Cornutus gives us that rare and wonderful thing, a programmatic outline of how the perennial tradition is supposed to work. Cornutus also refers to an earlier time when humans saw more clearly than they do now, and this is why, according to him, myths and even cultic rituals, which have been handed down to us by these early sages, contain hermeneutically rich philosophic meanings. This opens the door to interpretation of pretty much all religious phenomena, at least traditional ones, both texts and practices as having esoteric meanings. If we want to find the earliest example on record of a kind of comparative cross-cultural reading of this ancient sage canon, both Greek and barbarian for hidden wisdom, we need to look to Cornutus, as George Boy Stones has pointed out in his book on post-Hellenistic philosophy. Another Stoic of the Neronian period preserves a similar methodology for us, though we don't have as explicit a kind of program from Chairomon, for it is he. This gentleman, Chairomon, was an Egyptian, and we have fragments of a work by him on the Egyptian hieroglyphs. The later sources tell us all sorts of interesting stories about this guy, but it's generally agreed that he was A, Egyptian, B, a Stoic, and C, that he interpreted religious rituals, namely mysteries and the customs of the Egyptian priesthood, which are usually classed as mysteries by Greek authors, as esoteric philosophic teachings. The context of one of our sources here is the late Platonist Porphyry, writing in his anti-Christian tractate against the Christians, which unfortunately doesn't survive, except in fragments, that the Christian Oregon used Chiromon the Stoic and Cornutus, from whom he learned the metalepticon mode of interpretation and applied it to the Jewish scriptures. Now, metalepticon is basically allegorical. So he learned this kind of allegorical reading from the Stoics, Cornutus and Chiromon, and then turned to what we would call the Old Testament and got seriously hermeneutical, according to Porphyry. 
Now, Oregon is undoubtedly an absolutely essential, esoteric, hermeneutic pioneer in Christianity, and we shall devote an episode to his practice of biblical exegesis later on in the podcast with great gusto. But for now, what does this tell us about the Stoics? Well, it tells us they were using what was recognizably a special type of reading, a special type of hermeneutic, and they were seen as doing so by at least one non-Stoic, which is Porphyry. Now, can we say anything more about this hermeneutic in sort of in action? Remember, we mentioned at the beginning of this episode that there were at least two arts by which the Stoic sage could read the hidden messages within the world and within texts. The first, divination, was very much adapted to the world, but the second, which we'll talk about now, is a textual tradition, an interpretive art which we generally call allegory, which is a way of saying, in a text, one thing in fact stands for another thing. So let's say the most basic form of allegory, Hera in a myth, a traditional Greek myth, stands for the element of air. So the Stoics read this myth and they say, aha, this is actually about physics. But the Stoics also had some more interesting specific hermeneutic practices in which they excelled kind of within this overarching allegorical approach. One of these perhaps the most typically Stoic, I will call esoteric etymology. And this is an art which the Stoics seem to have either invented or really refined, which will reappear again and again in the history of Western esotericism. As we alluded to earlier, this approach goes back at least to Chrysippus. In his first book on fate, which we've already discussed as using divination as a proof for the reality of fate, Chrysippus also uses the text of Homer, but he uses it in a specific way. He etymologizes the names of characters with associations with ideas of fate in them, and uses the sort of fanciful etymologies of these names to prove his point. In other words, words, or at least proper names, have hidden within them meanings which, when expanded, give philosophical lessons. We see similar exegesis of names, this time of gods rather than heroes, in Cornutus, and this kind of exegesis seems to have been one typically Stoic methodology for interrogating texts for deeper meanings. Now, we see this kind of etymology in Plato's dialogue The Cratylus, and elsewhere in Plato from time to time, but it always seems to be given by Socrates in a sort of playful manner, though you never can tell with Socrates. But with the Stoics, this rather fanciful-seeming process of etymological transformations of words seems to have been a guiding principle of exegesis and really undertaken in all seriousness, and was perhaps the most prominent tool in their battery of esoteric reading methodologies. If a myth seems absurd or unphilosophical, the names of the gods and heroes doubtless conceal allusions to Stoic physics. If a mystic initiation rite seems inexplicable or kind of arbitrary, look to the words used in the ritual, and the true meaning is no doubt hiding there somewhere. So, although they didn't invent this approach, for Greek etymological speculation goes way back and never approaches anything like the kind of law-based approach favored by modern linguists. So, in other words, Greeks had been reading words and going, ooh, that, that probably comes from this other word for a long time. But the Stoics seem to have adopted it formally as a kind of legit mode of exegesis of just about anything, but privileging religious myths and customs first and foremost, and the works of great poets as a kind of second rung. 
Now, I'd like to end this episode with two questions about this stoic, allegorical, and etymological hermeneutic. First of all, it's allegorical and etymological, but is it esoteric? What I mean is this. The Stoics have a canon of sources, myths, poets, rituals, etc., which they can decipher for hidden philosophic meanings. The reason that these sources contain hidden philosophic meanings is that the ancients who instituted these sources or wrote them down had more of a hotline to the gods or to nature, which for the Stoics is the same thing, than the later generations in which Stoicism arose. So it makes sense that their works would be sort of better informed about the gods and so on. So why didn't the ancients just go ahead and invent Stoic philosophy? Or put another way, why did these philosophical hidden messages get hidden in the first place? What was the motive for the ancients to be esoteric? Why didn't the ancients just explicitly state their doctrines, which were, of course, Stoic? This is the question of the motive of esotericism. When we see the Middle Platonists later, or, you know, starting from the first century CE, like Plutarch, adopting this basic methodological approach of the Stoics to reading their canon, and they start to find hidden meanings in things like Egyptian religious practices, as Plutarch does, or philosophical works, so reading Plato as an esoteric author, which is something we've already discussed in the podcast, we can actually find in our authors reasons for the esotericism that they attribute to their sources. For example, Plutarch thinks the gods are actually esotericists. <laughs> And that's why they speak in obscure oracles rather than directly. Because they, the gods, like philosophers, don't think that the higher truths are for general consumption, but must be guarded behind a screen of enigma, esoteric discourse. And in other Middle Platonists, and certainly in the Late Platonists, we find similar reasons given for the esotericism found in the tradition. But unfortunately... I must confess, I've been unable to find this kind of statement of motivation in the Stoics. As far as I can tell from the surviving literature, we need to assume that they think the signs of the universe and the signs given by esoteric texts are hidden because of some esoteric intent on the part of the authors, the gods or humans, respectively. But to be fair, I don't think we can prove this. So my characterization of these Stoic hermeneutic strategies as esoteric ones needs to be qualified as provisional, as it's not explicit, as far as I can tell, among the Stoics exactly why they think these meanings are not apparent at first sight, why they're hidden. If we pull back and look at the Greek tradition more generally, however, we see that the idea that the poets sought to keep their wisdom out of the hands of the masses for reasons of philosophical initiation is reasonably early and reasonably widespread. We get our first real glimpse into the theoretical backing for enigma as esoteric discourse from the Derveni Papyrus. This wonderful document, we recall, is the oldest Greek manuscript we possess, and it preserves part of an esoteric reading of an Orphic poem. So it's an interpretation of a poem, and it was found in the remains of a funeral pyre. It was meant to be burnt, in fact, and so perhaps really was an esoteric document that we have no business reading, but let's go ahead and read it anyway. Here is the reasoning given in the Derveni Papyrus behind Orpheus's enigmatic approach to writing poetry. His work seems strange and riddling, but Orpheus does not speak in riddles for the sake of it, but rather delivers great 
inner meanings, important inner meanings, through his riddles, enigmata. His command for humankind to shut the doors of their ears, which is a mystic sort of catchphrase, the author of the Derveni Papyrus tells us the reason for this command is to let us know that Orpheus is speaking only to those, quote, pure in hearing, end of quote. In other words, Orpheus isn't being mystifying for no good reason. He has serious stuff to impart, but he must hide it so that the uninitiated can't hear it. So he uses mythology to do so. As we've seen in our survey of the pre-Socratics and of Plato, one tradition within early philosophy the one we've been documenting, was very concerned with taking traditional sources of wisdom, oracles and divination, the Homeric poems, mythology more generally, and the teachings of the mystery cults, and sort of interrogating them and adapting them for philosophical truths and philosophical exegesis. But the mysteries gave the philosophers the structural model of an inner elite and of philosophical esotericism as an important part of philosophy. So, returning to the Stoics, when the Roman-era Stoic Seneca refers to Stoic hermeneutics as, quote, our initiations, or the Augustan-era Stoic commentator on Homer, Heraclitus, no, not that Heraclitus, the other one, Heraclitus Stoicus, when he refers to interpreting Homer as, quote, Homeric initiatory rites, and refers to allegorical interpreters of Homer as priests and temple attendants of the Homeric initiations, we're probably right to see behind these ideas the idea that the poets, at least, were intentionally esoteric within the context of this belief in the excavation of philosophic truths from their writings as an initiatory process. So what I'm saying here is although we don't have any Stoics coming out and saying the ancients were esoteric, for this and that reason, I think it's plausible to argue that the Stoics took the idea of philosophy as initiation, philosophy as mystery, which they were playing with, at least in the Augustan period, and projected something like it back in time onto the ancients. So the ancient sages will have had the same sorts of concerns as the Augustan era Stoics, and they will have wanted to keep certain things from the uninitiated masses. You can't from a social perspective, have initiates without uninitiates. And you can't have the change in status that initiation brings without a previous state, which is typified both in the mystic tradition and in philosophical appropriations of the mystic tradition as a state of ignorance. So, for what it's worth, I suspect that the Stoics, even perhaps the Stoics as early as Chrysippus, did have a theory here and that it did revolve around an initiatory model of philosophical elitism. It just doesn't survive. I mean, Chrysippus had a theory for everything. He can't have failed to ask the question, why Homer and why all these correspondences in the universe are so damn cryptic? And I suspect that he gave an answer something like the following. Universal providence and the ancient sages who understood universal providence so well hide their wisdom behind the cloak of enigma to protect unphilosophical people from wisdom which could actually do them harm, since they're not initiated into the philosophy in such a way that they have a holistic worldview which enables them to comprehend the truth in the correct way. So if we take Chrysippus's doctrine of fate, for example, the idea of universal determinism, that everything is determined, this could cause an unphilosophic person to freak out 
because they suddenly think I'm a robot, you know, I have no free will. But if they'd come to grips with Chrysippus' philosophy and understood that universal fate is compatible with individual freedom, as Chrysippus taught, they would not freak out. So when you're teaching this kind of heavy-duty stuff like Chrysippus was, you'd be aware that it's easily bastardized in the hands of people lacking the necessary training. And let's face it, most of us would be baffled by a high-level thinker like Chrysippus. So for what it's worth, that's my irresponsible speculation as to why the Stoics might have sort of speculated <laughs> that the sages, and even God itself, might have spoken in enigmata, that is, riddles, esoteric meanings. My second question for the Stoics is the old question of the authorial or intentional fallacy. Nowadays, the author is alleged to be dead, generally speaking. In other words, when we read a text, we're very aware that we're in the process of constructing the meaning of the text as we read. I don't mean to get all postmodern here. This is actually pretty common sense stuff. Does anyone really think that Homer intended the Iliad as an elaborate commentary on physics, a la the Stoics? No, of course not. But the Stoics think it's perfectly legitimate to read Homer this way, which leads us to ask the question, did they think Homer meant his work to be an esoteric physics manual? Now, as Robert Lamberton has pointed out in his magisterial study, Homer the Theologian, the ancient Greeks seem, as far as we can tell, to have been absolutely in the thrall of the intentional fallacy. If it can be found in an author, the author meant to put it there. So if you can find physics in Homer, Homer definitely meant to put it there. He's a universal author. He can write about physics and heroic battle scenes at the same time, because that's just how great he is. But... Lamberton thinks, the Stoics may have in fact been the honorable exception here. Plutarch, a Platonist author, quotes Chrysippus, a Stoic, to the effect that readers should take what is good from one work and transfer it interpretively to other works, and that they must themselves, quote, set the field of reference of the text and even expand that field beyond what is given, epipleon, I'm quoting Lamberton there, not Plutarch. As Lamberton points out, it's not clear from Plutarch's selective quotations here that Chrysippus was really being as sort of modern or as savvy in his way of thinking here as it might seem. But then again, Chrysippus was way ahead of his time in logic and may well have been way ahead of his time in literary theory as well. Certainly one option for understanding the Stoic ideas about interpreting universal signs and actively extracting meaning from texts through things like made-up etymologies is to read it as a very canny, very un-Greek approach to the creation of meaning. We'll leave that idea to simmer in the minds of our listeners, and hopefully this episode will have at least brought out just how important Stoic ideas about universal semiosis, perennial wisdom, and esoteric reading are for the history of Western esotericism. And future episodes will document the evolution of these ideas in the Platonists, who are really the conduit that takes these ideas from the Stoics and transfers them into the Western esoteric traditions. But for now, we turn in the next episode to several concepts from Stoic physics, which also play a major role in later esoteric conceptions of how the universe works. We will be paying another call on Logos and also looking at Pneuma and this idea of universal sympathia or correspondence in the next episode. 
And until then, imitate the ancient sages whose prolepsis of the innate logos of the universe enabled them to encode true philosophic doctrines within the mystic rites they founded, and stay esoteric.